Absolutely. Friends, let us turn for our reading of God's holy word this evening to the book of the Revelation and the chapter 1 into the chapter 2. The last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, the Revelation which begins the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, commencing reading at the verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear together God's precious holy word. The Lord help us and give us a right understanding of his word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh. With clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book. And send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth 
in his strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them that are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. We end the public reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word there. We pray that the Lord would be pleased to bless the reading of his word and grant his Holy Spirit to both preacher and congregation, that his word may be rightly preached and then rightly applied to my needful souls. We pray that if any be unsaved, then if it's the Lord's will to save, such as should be saved according to the glory of his name. The Lord be pleased even to draw sinners out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let us pray. Let us seek the Lord this night in needful prayer. Well, dear congregation, dear friends, I'll ask you to please turn your prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in your hearing. We read from Revelation chapter 1 right through to chapter 2, and right there at the end of the verse 7. This evening, with the Lord's help, we'll consider verses 1 to 7 of Revelation chapter 2, concerning the church and Ephesus. For a few weeks now, we have begun to look at this tremendous last book of the Bible. Every book of the Bible, dear friends, is wonderful. I I know you hear me say that every time we look at a, a new book of the Bible, but every page of Scripture is simply tremendous. But it is also very solemn when we read the Word of God. To whom much has been given, much will be 
required. These are very, very solemn things that are before us. I trust when we come to the book of the Revelation, we're not come for entertainment. Some people, when they read the book of the Revelation, they always seem to be interested in strange imagery, and they never really understand the spiritual dimensions and the great depth of this book, because they are merely looking to tickle the flesh, to stroke the flesh, and to appease the mind. We're here to feed the soul upon God's word. We're here essentially to worship in all that we hear tonight. I trust that it will be out of a sense of filial fear. We've sung of that, how the Lord draws near to those who have that filial fear. The Lord has said, on this one will I look. He that is of a broken heart and a contrite spirit and that trembles at my word. We realize that we come so short of this word. We realize that this word is the living word. As we have read, it is as Christ is. Hebrews 4 tells us the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And as we have read, Christ's word proceeds out of his mouth as a two-edged sword. It will save some, but it will be to the destruction of others. So this evening in our sermon and our studies, we want to concentrate our minds upon what is said here to the church at Ephesus. And as we'll see by some of the introductory comments that I'll make, that it's not just to the church at Ephesus. Yes, primarily here it was. But what we will see as we study each one of these letters to the churches or epistles, that they are universal. They can apply to the churches throughout time. As we'll see here, that which is to come, as we have read. The things that take place in the church of Ephesus will also take place. Sentiments and wrong attitudes and wrong spirits within God's people will take place in God's churches throughout the millennia. Sometimes we may need an admonition, as was given to the church at Ephesus or the church at Laodicea. Who knows? May the Lord, by his Spirit, speak to our hearts. So just a few introductory comments this evening. I want you to glean, and I mentioned this uh, last week, but I want to expand upon this. This letter, and indeed all the other epistles, even in the New Testament, And you know that there are individual letters here written in chapter 2, first of all to Ephesus, and then to the church there at Smyrna, and so on, and on it goes. If you notice in all of these epistles here, or these letters, and also throughout all the New Testament, they are written to churches individually. Now this really helps us to understand the New Testament teaching on the ordained government of the churches. Remember what I said, we're going to learn doctrine as we go through. You'll notice that this epistle here, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, is written to an individual church, first of all. It's written to the angel of the church or the messenger of the church. It's not written to a group of ministers from different churches, what some might call a presbytery. We wholly reject the uh, polity or the church government 
of a presbytery. It's not written to churches, but individual churches, an individual message. It's not written to somebody who might be described as a moderator. We don't find that word in the New Testament. Someone would moderate between the churches. No, there's no such thing, including all the other epistles. You to take, for example, the letter to the Colossians or the Philippians. It's written to that individual church, not to a select body of men who would then come and counsel the church. No. It's written to the elders, for instance, Philippians, elders and deacons of that church. We're told very clearly in verse 1. It's the same with all of the epistles. And the word here in verse 1 is the word Angel is the word messenger or minister, the one who is the pastor, as we'll see, who preaches and brings the message of God's word to the church week by week. And this is very vital. The biblical practice, let me say, of independent church government is essential for the well-being of the church. The Bible doesn't teach denominations. It teaches the independency of the local church. For years we were in a denomination and it was a disaster. Cursed is the man that trusteth in man. But we must trust the Lord and the blueprint that he gives for church government. So church independency is absolutely vital for our understanding. And we get it here from the book of the Revelation and from all the New Testament churches. And so our practice here as a church and church government and rule must be founded not upon the examples of other churches out there, but upon God's word. The foundation is laid forth, my dear friends, in Scripture. Other churches do not have a jurisdiction over this church. Other ministers do not have a jurisdiction over this church. The church appoints the pastor and officers of this church. And the church has the power to remove the pastor and the officers. As a church recognizes the gifting of men with peculiar gifts, they're appointed by that local church. It's very clear in Ephesians and in other passages of Scripture, that local church, not a presbytery, appoints that particular man or deacons or Officers for the church as officers. So this is very important. Now, of course, as a church, it's only right that we have fellowship with like-minded churches. You know, it's very clear in the New Testament. But we're not to be governed by them. We are to be independent. And each church here, there's there's a warning to each. And it doesn't come through again, as I say, a presbytery or some subordinate Uh, group or some group that is over the church. That's vital for us to understand. Now, the second thing is within context. Let's just put everything here into context. Remember, as we said over the last few weeks, John, the last living apostle, and we say that because the time somewhere now is around 98 AD, is the last living apostle, and we read here that he's on the island of Patmos, and he tells us there in verse 9, The reason, he says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. 
And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God. That's the whole reason why. But he's in tribulation and he's a companion with them in tribulation. Which tells us, as we thought last week, that churches were greatly troubled throughout Asia Minor, throughout even Jerusalem and all over. And uh, why? For the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we're reminded that all that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, he says here on the, on the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit. The, as we've remarked before, the, the Christians began to meet on the first day of the week. And that's because the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to them on the eighth day, which was the first day of the week. And he did the consecutive, the next Lord's Day. And thus the Lord Jesus was setting a pattern for the churches to meet on the first day of the week. And you know, Hebrews 4.9 reminds us, it says there, there remaineth therefore a rest. And it's not the word kataposis. It's the word sabbatismos. The word kataposis is used throughout Hebrews 4. But it's the word rest. Kataposis is where we get the word pause from. There's a pausing. They, they pause there in Canaan. But now there remaineth a rest for the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest is also seized from his own works, as God did from his. So those, as Paul says to the Hebrews, there remains a Sabbath keeping for the Lord. If you notice in your margin of your TBS, that's what it says. There remaineth a Sabbath keeping for the Lord. That's what the word Sabbatismos means. And so John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Yes, in a peculiar way, but each and every one of us should always be filled with the Spirit of God. How can we ever have God's blessing if we neglect his day? You know, and if, if we, we treat church as a last-minute thought, and we, we're always late, or we give, give this second thought, God will never bless us. And so the first thing is we remember we thought last week, I just say these things by introduction. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ. He heard and he saw he heard the great voice as a trumpet. And then he saw the magnificent presence of the Lord Jesus, something of his greatness. But he saw him as a high priest. And all the priestly garments were upon him. And it signified an active high priest, as the high priest was when he was presenting that sacrifice once a year on behalf of the people. It was so awesome, as we read in chapter 1, for John to behold, instead of his feet as fine brass burning, as they were burned in a furnace, formidable, his eyes as, fl as a flame of fire. What an awesome sight that must have been. Jesus Christ having that gaze that can see through the hypocrisy of every man. There's nothing hidden from his eyes with whom we have to do. Eyes as a flame of fire. His eyes burn through all sham and hypocrisy. There's nothing hidden from him, friends. He knows whether our heart is true, sincere. His hair, white as wool. It's a picture of the ancient of days there in the book of Daniel that we saw, remember. 
And th- furthermore, as I said, his apparel, his garments, whereas the high priest was adorned as an active high priest on duty. And that just reminds us, as he, as he walks, and there he is amidst his lampstands, and we're told at the end of chapter 1 that the lampstands, notice there, represent the churches of Jesus Christ. It's all symbolical language. Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, is amidst his church. He's fulfilling what he said there in Matthew 28. Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. He is with his people. So John sees him walking amidst the lampstands. And the very first church he sees is the very one where John was. You know, John was at the church at Ephesus. The early church fathers tell us this. And legend has it that John could be heard what he says there in 1 John, little children love one another. Now, John sees him. And as he sees him, he also sees that he has a, that, as it were, out of his mouth proceeded that two-edged sword. His word, as I said, divides. Just as a two-edged sword, we can think of a two-edged sword, dual purpose. His word, doesn't it divide the intents and the thoughts of the heart? And it will save some. It'll pierce the hearts of many. But it will also judge men by the word of Christ and by the gospel. They'll be judged and by the law. But blessed are they that keep his word and keep his commandments. His voice, remember, as we thought, was that of many waters. And the last time this earth heard many waters was in that great day of judgment when God opened the fountains of the deep underneath the crustal layers of the earth where masses of water were stored. You know, people laugh at the idea of a worldwide flood. Well, if they just took time to read the Bible, they'd soon discover that there were masses of waters underneath the crustal layers. And God opened the fountains of the deep, and the rain came from above. It was never seen before, but it happened, and they heard many waters. These are pictures of judgment. And then we read in the verse 18, He has the keys of hell and death. He who was dead and was alive is alive now forevermore. He has the keys of hell and death. Keys, as we know, represent authority. A man that has keys to a building has the authority to enter into that building. And so it is with Christ. Remember what he said, all power and authority is given unto me. And that's where we left off last time. So just a few verses before we come to chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. Write the things which thou hast seen, verse 19 of chapter 1, and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Now we mentioned these seven churches, and we said that if you were to draw a line from Ephesus right the way around to the last church, you would have a circle, and Christ is in the midst of the churches. And of course, it's addressed to each church, but as I said, when we think of these churches, we mustn't just think that the word here just applies, it did apply to those churches particularly then, But if you notice in verse 19, it says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. 
Now, in a sense, these things will continue to be in the churches, these same problems, because man born unto a woman is born of trouble in a few days. And we are susceptible to the same sins and problems as these churches were. And how often has it been for you when you've read the Word of God? You know, many modern people today say, well, the Bible is very irrelevant. They'll say, it doesn't apply. It applies to people in those days. Nonsense. You know as a Christian, you've read some passage anywhere in the Word of God, and it's come to you, and it's personal. It comes with power, and it comes with conviction. These things don't just apply to a particular time. But the Bible is relevant, all of it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And all of the word of God, we are told, is profitable. Remember what Paul says in Romans 15 verse 4, For whatsoever things are written aforetime, written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So all of the word of God applies to us. We can't say that it's not relevant to us. All of scripture in some way or another, are relevant. He says, the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. So, it's the living word, isn't it? It's not a dead word. It's alive. And the Spirit takes it and brings it to our particular need and our particular case in life. And so what we have here are churches, yes. It applies to them immediately. But we will go through similar problems and we might even find tonight we are suffering the same sins. They're endemic throughout the age, the church age. And uh, so when we come to this, we must say, Lord. And if you notice, while it's addressed to the church at Ephesus, it says, what does it say? Let us hear what the Spirit says. Unto the churches. Did you notice that? It doesn't say church, but churches. Not just Ephesus. But this will happen. It's a reproof. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. It'll be true from every age. Now, we come again this evening to The seven stars. Well, we're told here, it says here at the end of this chapter, chapter 1, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, you notice from chapter 1, it's addressed, chapter 2, sorry, verse 1, it says that this letter unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write. So, you can't imagine, would John be writing to a literal angel, a heavenly being? Strange. And do we for one millisecond imagine that an angel would appear in the church? It's not spoken of at all. None of the early church fathers said an angel came to visit them. But here, the Greek word for angel simply means messenger. We can't imagine it. It just wouldn't make sense if John is writing to a heavenly being. The heavenly beings are bringing John a message. It would be rather strange. The angel gives John a message here, beginning of chapter 1, and John is to give it 
to the messengers of the church. I hope that makes sense. It just wouldn't make sense for John to write a letter to some angelic being and some angelic being to appear then into a church. And by the way, that would mean that there is an angel belonging to this church. It's not so. It simply means a minister. I hope to not belabor the point, but I trust, because it's difficult for some people. But it's just logical, isn't it? It would be illogical otherwise. Now, by the way, you notice also that these angels are in his right hand. And this would be an immense sense, a form of comfort for John and for all of the ministers. And it, and it reminds us that Christ supports, protects, he is the, the sovereign one over the ministers. And even when we think here of the, the first church, Ephesus, even what they know, the minister needs to understand the minister's in the Lord's hands. He's only what he is by the Lord's grace. He's a nothing, really, in and of himself. He cannot boast. The ministers of any of these churches must realize that they are what they are by the grace of God. And by the way, let me say, pastors are never self-appointed. True pastors. Of course, first of all, gifted by Christ, but then it's the church that is to recognize and to call men to preach. Pastors are never to be self-appointed. And the Bible is very clear, Romans 10 verse 15, it says, How shall they preach except they be sent? Preachers have to be sent by a church, otherwise they're not properly called or ordained and recognized. And that's very important. And so the the New Testament clearly shows proper church government and that everyone who is to preach is to be sent by the local church. And this stops all this sort of charlatan ministry today. Um, It's sad. You know, many claiming and trying to raise sort of lots of money on the internet and they have no accountability. No account, a minister, I am accountable to this church, as you are. We're all accountable to the church. Now, if you just have a look here. Now, as we come to this epistle, I want to just say a few things, again, by way of introduction. As we come to each of these epistles, there is a pattern that you will notice, generally speaking. And it's made up, again, of seven parts. Remember, I said... Seven is a special number. But you'll notice that there's a pattern that occurs to most of these churches. And first of all, the first thing you'll notice in each of these epistles is that there is an address to the church. That's the first thing. And secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ will give one of his distinct titles. It'll be a unique title, but it belongs to Christ and Christ alone. So that's the second thing you'll notice. And then thirdly, There's Christ's commendation of that church, or we could say his approbation. He approves of it. He mentions certain things concerning that church. And then, fourthly, the Lord's condemnation as well about something. He'll say, but I have this against thee, and so on. And then, fifthly, there's Christ's solemn warning to do, to obey him, to hear his word. And then sixthly, you'll notice that there's an exhortation 
And then seventhly, we have Christ's promise if they obey his warning or his exhortation. It's an everlasting blessing. Now, of course, he's not teaching here that we earn our salvation. But all that truly are Christ, and this is the lesson, will obey his voice. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Now, you notice at the end, it's always he that overcometh, and all of God's people, as Paul says in Romans 8, are more than conquerors through Christ that loved us. It, the strength is not in us. He's speaking to us by his word, and he is giving us his spirit that we may obey his word. Now notice, first of all, we notice the address. This is the first. We'll see the pattern here. And by the way, uh, when it comes to this pattern, there are some exceptions. The church at Laodicea is not commended for anything. The church at Philadelphia and um, Smyrna, are, there's, there's nothing said to condemn them. So those are the exceptions. But generally speaking, the majority, there is a pattern. So verse 1, the address of Christ, it's distinct here, and, and it's his self. What you see is the salutation, the address, and Christ's distinct titles. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write. So there's the address to that church. These things saith, now here's Christ's title. He that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. And this is particularly apt for this church, because Ephesus, as you will see, is a doctrinally sound church. And it's a reminder to the minister and to the church, your minister I hold in my hand. I've made him to be what he is. You don't take any pride in that. You understand that. I hold my ministers in my hand. And as I said, this is the church where it is believed John was. And we know Timothy was there as well. We know from the epistles to Timothy when Paul writes. He, he tells him to abide there at Ephesus. And there were other good men that went there. Paphras, they were good sound men that went to the Ephesian church. And it's, we shouldn't be amazed. This church was in good stead. They had good doctrine. They had sound doctrine. Now, what about Ephesus? Well, it was a very wealthy, it was a very prosperous place. And it had a seaport. It, it, it was very, very wealthy. It was, a, it was a great metropolis. It was a commercial city. But of course, we know what else happened at Ephesus. The false god, or we should say goddess Diana, was worshipped there. They reverenced her. Remember how Paul was really traumatized there by them, harassed and harangued by the people. The place was wholly given to idolatry, to idol worship and selling images of Diana. It was a terrible place. Well, in this dark city, the Lord was pleased to plant a church. And this happened on Paul's third missionary journey, and the Lord has prospered it. We know that the Apostle Paul, from Acts chapter 20, spent three whole years there. And remember, he called for the elders of the church, and they came down to Miletus, if you turn there to Acts 20, and uh, he summoned them because 
he was bidding farewell. He seemed that the Lord is leading him to the end of his life and his time is drawing near, Acts 20, verse 30. And there's a warning. As he addresses the, the Ephesian elders, they've come down to meet him and he warns them and he says, And also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. He says, From your own people, from this church. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one day and night with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I've coveted no man's silver or gold. It was a prosperous place. And here, speaking about the church and the members or apparel, yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. Paul was even still tent-making, although he did receive gifts from the church, but he never imposed upon the church. That's the right spirit. Now notice their condemnation. As you come back here, to uh, their commendation, should I say. Verse 2, the Lord says this about the church at Ephesus, I know thy works. And by the way, the word here, know, is not the word gnosis, but it's the word ido, which is to know intimately. He had an intimate knowledge of every one of these people. Their dedication to the truth, their dedication, their works, their labor of love their commitment to gospel truths, their patience and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. He says, I know. I, I know you have a love for the truth. They, they labored. They labored in the gospel. They labored maintaining a witness in that very dark and covetous city where meat was offered to idols. And it was wholly given to sensuality and all kinds of things. It was a large city full of problems. I know thy works, thy labor and thy patience. They were sowing the seed of the word of God day by day. Amidst this darkness, amidst the difficulty. Now, sadly, many churches today want to see instant results. I think we, we can learn a lot from this church at Ephesus, can't we? They were patient. They didn't see instant results. There was great wickedness. There was opposition to the truth all around. There was tribulation from the world. But they couldn't bear sin and evil. Yet they persisted. They couldn't tolerate sin in the church. We read, and house thou canst not bear them which are evil. Well, it's almost frowned upon today. Isn't it in modern churches, in the contemporary church, when you say, well, something is, is wrong? You know, it seems that the only thing intolerant is intolerance today. In fact, you can't tolerate something. Well, you're being intolerant. You're being unloving. But the Lord commands this. The Lord says, I know it, and, it, and it's a commendation. Now, notice something else. And thou hast tried, literally, the, the Greek word here means to scrutinize them which say they are apostles. They examine them. Well, the, 
How could they do this? Because they knew the real deal. They knew the signs of an apostle. They saw Paul. They met Paul. They knew John. And they could tell the true from the charlatan. They could tell the false from the true. And this is a lesson to us. You can only deal with error when you know what's right. It's it's the same with all doctrine, isn't it, in the church? You can only deal with error by knowing what is right. And you stay well away from it. So they could spot the charlatans. By the way, they were so different to the church at Corinth. Do you remember when when Paul went away from Corinth? We read there in 2 Corinthians, and we know that even one claimed to be an apostle, and Paul was stood into his face. And he says this, in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. You see, it's again the same word, angel, messenger of light. And that's what some of these men were. They were men in darkness. And there were those who were saying they were apostles. Now, we know there are only 12 apostles. And one of the credentials of being an apostle is you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And you had to have been personally called by him. As Paul was, an apostle called out of due time, out of ordinary time, unlike the others. And so they were able to distinguish. They knew what was false, what was right. So different to the church at Corinth. They didn't. They were deceived. Paul, that's why he had to say, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul had to say it to the Corinthians. But the Lord Jesus doesn't need to say it to this church. They know and the Lord commends them. Now, doctrine matters, doesn't it? Because if, if you've got people leading you astray, and let me say, departure from doctrine is departure from God. If you come away from true teaching, you come away from God. It's that serious. You know, there, there are no sort of secondary issues, my friend. People play around with words. So, well, oh, this is a secondary issue. That's a, No, no. You start to change the meaning of the Lord's table. You start to change the meaning of baptism. You are departing from God, and I'll show that to you tonight. Thou hast tried, thou hast scrutinized them which are apostles. Say they're apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. They knew orthodox biblical teaching, and they were not afraid to discipline. They were not afraid to discipline those who caused trouble. They called them out. Now these things are so important today, aren't they? Necessary. We live in a very compromising age, friends. The Lord Jesus can't stand it. Falsities, departure from the word of God, is a terrible thing. Verse 3, and and has borne and has patience for my name's sake, and has labored and has not fainted. They didn't faint in this. They were pursuant in all of this. There was a, a tireless, it seems, zeal for God and for Christ's word and the work, because all they knew was False. Now notice also, look at the verse 6. But thou hast this, that thou hatest the 
Now notice, this is important, the deeds. The deeds of these people. Nicolaitans, some would pronounce it, Nicolaitans. We won't divide over pronunciation of words, but there you have it. They hated the, not the Nicolaitans, but the deeds of them. And that's very important. And the Lord remarks on this. It, you know, there's a spirit that is very wrong. We are not to hate. Now, these Nicolaitans are believed to be Christians, but they, they were practicing, as we'll see, some terrible things. It's believed that the, the, the word Nicolaitan comes from let's eat. And so it's believed by some that these Nicolaitans were just eating, because we know in Ephesus men were eating food offered to idols. And these people didn't care if something was offered to a false god. But he said, you, you hate their deeds. Now that's commendable. We should never hate true believers. And we must always be very careful how we speak about other churches. We must hate what they do. Hate the sin. But let us be very careful. The Lord alone knows who we're his. We need to be of a humble mind and a right spirit. Well, this seems like a wonderful church, doesn't it? But there's something wrong. Something terribly wrong here. And so, so thirdly, we have the condemnation. Notice, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Well, what does this mean? What does the Lord Jesus Christ mean when he says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left their first love? Think of it. Here's this doctrinally sound church. And they're doing everything right. There's, there's nothing lacking in terms of their zeal. Here's the problem. Everything they were doing was not driven by love. They were doing things out of a sense of duty. And, and of course, love is a duty. But you know, the first love is this, to realize why we're loved. It's all of grace. He chose to love Jacob over Esau. And he chose to love you and me over lost sinners purely on the basis of his grace. And all of that is unmerited. And it's the love of God that really constrains us. And you see, it seems, and most scholars would agree with this, that these people are just going about their work. They're doing everything out of the wrong motive. The motive for service should always be love. If you love me, didn't he say, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now the illustration can be given by a marriage. You know, people can be married for many years. But then all of a sudden love seems to be waning and things are then done out of a mere sense of duty. And that's wrong. It's, it's slavish fear. That's, that's wrong. And that can easily happen. And that happened here. These people have almost become sort of proud of who they are and what they know. And it, they don't go back to Calvary. They don't go back to grace. They, they don't go back to see what they were. 
They don't go back to the pit. They don't go back to the fact that they have to realize they are what they are by the grace of God. Oh, they are doctrinally sound. And they're doing all the right things. And they even hate the deeds. And the Lord commends that. Hate the deeds, but not the people of the Nicolaitans. But what about their love for him? And that can be so easy for us as Christians. You know, the Lord really desires a sense of loyalty to him out of love. You know, being a Christian is personal, isn't it? It, it, We don't come here because out of a sense of trying to earn, salvation has been given to us. It's the, the gift of God. And what we do now is because we love him. And that's why it is so important every Lord's Day from this pulpit that the gospel is preached, not simply, friends, to proclaim the gospel to the lost, but essentially for the believer to feed upon what Christ has done for us. We're to go to Calvary every day, in fact, in our minds, because we would just serve him out of a dry, dead orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is important. Sound doctrine is essential, but we need to go to the cross. I get worried, or very concerned. People in the church lose their joy. Because there's a sense that they've lost their love. Why do you love Christ? Because he first loved you. And there's a sense you can't get over that. And you're caught up in holy wonder and awe, and, and it just consumes your life. And therefore, as Paul says, the love of Christ constrains us. That's what moves us. That's what motivates us. I deserve wrath like the rest of the world. They need to return to their first love. What they need to realize, first of all, is Christ's love for them. And that's where it begins. You know, we have no love in ourselves. You look for love there, you're not going to find it. Not in and of yourself. Not that we love God, says John, but that he loved us. We love him because he first loved us. Simple as that. So the exhortation. Fourthly, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. You have come from that place. That's such a high place, friends. Basking in the love of God's Son and in the Father's love. Remember what the Lord said. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. John 15, the verse 9. Continue ye in my love. That's how you continue in my love. Not your love. You continue in my love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's a night we can't comprehend that. How much does the Father love the Son? More than we can ever know. And the Lord says, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. He could not help but draw us. And that is what we need to bask in. We need to be taken up with his grace. It was not a man's faith that saved him. 
God's grace quickened him so that he had faith, so that he believed on Christ. That's important. You think of the two ordinances that are absolutely vital in the church, and you think about the ordinances. This is what I said. You go wrong in your doctrine, you go wrong in your walk with Christ. What do the ordinances mean? What does baptism mean? Paul says we are buried with him in baptism. Christ died for us. And when we go into the water, it pictures our death. And raised out of the water, raised a newness of life. You change the meaning of baptism, friend, you're going to have a very poor life. When you see somebody else baptized, what's it telling you? Not only telling you what God has done in that man's life, but in your life. And then, what, did it, what else did he say? Do this in remembrance of me. What was he speaking about? The Lord's table. You neglect that. What are you meant to do? What am I meant to do when we come around the Lord's table? We're meant to, he said, do this in remembrance of me. You're feeding your mind upon what Christ has done. Aren't you? It's a feast of love and joy. And you neglect that? You neglect your first love? You change the meaning of baptism? You start to pervert the meaning of God's word? You're going to end up in some horrible cul-de-sac, my friends. These things are essential. These commandments are not there to make us burdensome but to lift us up and to make us strong in Christ, in his love. In both of those ordinances, the love of Christ is shown. In baptism. You know, it's not a might be. That's why we wholly reject infant baptism, because it does not signify Christ's love. But our baptism, believer's baptism, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that signifies Christ's love for his church, buried with him in baptism, raised with him in newness of life, and we're told it's the answer of a good conscience. You ain't got no conscience until you're born again, friends. You don't have a conscience as a baby. The Lord says, my son, give me thine heart. And that's what he wants. Remember when Peter needed to be restored? He didn't ask Peter a whole bunch of theological questions. He said, Peter, do you love me? That's all I want to know. Peter, do you love me? That's what it's all about, Peter. Isn't it? It's all about that. And so fifthly, we have Christ's solemn warning. Now, let me say this. Christ's warning is always heeded by his sheep. Because none of his sheep will perish. Not one. It's always heeded. He says, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. What's he saying? He's going to remove. Now, the candlestick is an apt symbol of the light which the church is emitting in that dark part of Ephesus. And every Christian is light in the Lord. And he says, I'm going to remove the church's witnesses. It's going to cease to be a church because the way you are going on, he says, is not honoring to me. Yes, you're sound in doctrine. Yes, you hate the things that you should hate, but you're doing it all for the wrong reason. 
You've forsaken your first love. You're not doing it for me. You're doing it for the praise. Or maybe out of a sense of duty. And, and you know, we can slip into this as Christians, sadly. You know, you can come along and maybe even just pray. But you don't pray during the week. There's no intimacy with Christ. Every day there's no intimacy. You, 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 you can pray to be seen. And, and you can even do things and even do the right things to be seen. To be seen of men. And there's lots of things we can do to be seen of men. Sounds like the Pharisees, doesn't, doesn't it, to you? To me? You can do things to be seen of men, and that's selfish. And Christ sees it right through it. There's nothing hidden from him tonight. You can just go through the motion of things. And he sees through it. But what he wants is done out of a sense of love for him and his people. Maybe these people are doing it because Paul told us false teachers will come in. And they were right to do that. And maybe there's this sense of obligation. And that's right. To go on in the footsteps of their forebears, Paul and John. And that was right. But look, if there's one thing missing that's essential, it's missing. And the whole lot is useless as far as Christ is concerned. If the baseline disposition of our service is not love. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. If I sell all my goods, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have no charity or love, I become as a sounding brass or a tinking symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity or love, I am nothing. And so on. You can read right through. If there's not love there and love to Christ. And you see, the thing is, if you don't love Christ, you're not going to love the brethren. Because we get our love one for another from our love for, for him. Because we have one thing in common. We've all been called by grace. We realize when we come in the church, we're all on the same ground. Nobody has something to say, look, I, I, I've got this to offer the church. I've got that to offer. We've got nothing to offer. Anything God's put in our hands is from him. And he gets the praise for everything. Now, sixthly, Christ's exhortation. Accept thou, repent. He says, change. Confess that you've been doing things for the wrong reasons. Admit it. Come away from this dry, hard formalism. Yes, doctrine is essential. And I'm sad to say, I, I've often met young men who are, who, who've come to understand Reformed doctrine, but these men are hard. Doctrine shouldn't make us hard. It shouldn't make us callous toward other people. It shouldn't make us have a judgmental and censorious spirit. And we must be very careful how we talk about other people. Please. I, I don't like talking about other churches unless it's necessary. Or other ministers, 
Don't put them down. You are what you are by the grace of God. And you remember that. You remember God's love, Christ's love to you. Who's made you to differ? Think on that. Hear what he says. This is not just to this church. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Not just Ephesus, but here. And every church, and every Christian. Seventhly, notice Christ's promise of everlasting blessing. If, the, uh, if what he has condemned, what he exhausts, is acted upon. Verse 7b, to him that overcometh. You overcome this sin. And it is a sin, friends, not to put the Lord first and to do things for the wrong motive. It is a sin. And often it's, you know, we forget. We forget how we've got to where we are. And we forget we owe, Paul says, owe no man anything except to love. But look what he says, but to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. This is really interesting. This is the first church. And by the way, this is their first love that they've neglected and fallen from. And what he does is he takes us right back to the first fall. Takes us back to the tree of life. You see that? To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That is exactly what Adam did. Adam lost his first love. He did what he wanted to do. You see, the first love comes back not only to the fall, but what you and I can easily neglect is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. That is the first commandment and the chief and if we neglect that, you know, we become those who merely serve out of a sense of duty. And we're dry and we're hard. Adam was most guilty of this, of leaving his first love, God. So was Eve. But the Lord says, if you repent, isn't that wonderful? How merciful he is. How gracious he is. All of his sheep will repent. They will all believe. So again, as I close, friends, doctrine is essential. You have wrong doctrine, you go terribly astray. Baptism, the Lord's table, picture Christ's love. That's it. Don't add anything to it. Don't subtract anything from it. Do these things in remembrance of him. Two ordinances he's left the church. We jolly well better keep them. Because in so doing, we keep ourselves, as Jude says, in the love of God. You keep loving him. You keep serving him. Draw near with a sincere heart. and Pray that he will make you and I better men and better women. For his name's sake. Amen.